Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh Darox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. Last year, you and I were talking about surrender, you know, and you said there's three things that make a perfect human. There's love and freedom and surrender. Right. You said, Jesh, you've gotten pretty good at love, you've gotten pretty good at freedom, but you're awful at surrender. When you said that, I instantly knew that it, <laughs> it was true. And I think the reason why I've been so bad at surrender for so many years is because I came from a situation as a child I didn't have the things that I needed, you know, to to grow and be healthy in, in the way that, you know, my body felt like it wanted or my emotional mind felt like it needed. My needs weren't being met in, in that way. And so I became kind of of a character to be constantly aware of whether or not my needs were being met. And I learned how to create situations where those needs were being met. And I became powerful over time Coming from a place of weakness, I became powerful in the meeting of my needs, but only in situations that I created. And outside of situations that I created, I would revert right back to that same young version of myself emotionally who was needy of the love and the attention and the validation and all of that. And so surrender became very, very hard for me because surrender seemed to be asking me to set aside my sureness that I was going to be okay and to set aside how I had grown powerful and to completely open myself up into being this weak, sad, you know, lonely version of myself that I had been doing my best to leave behind in the dust for so many years. But through all my attempts to leave that little boy behind, he never quite did get left behind. And he was always there hiding in the shadows throughout a lot of the major events of my life. And so I kind of grew in this strange way where I became very powerful and usually strong at certain forms of expression, at doing things that many people wouldn't even think to do. I was able to travel the world and speak to many people and touch a lot of people through my work and through my ideas. And yet still a part of me was just this young child who was still kind of calling out and crying out for help. It was almost exactly a year ago, you know, when we were having this conversation, I said, okay, like this year, I want to... I want to learn surrender. And then the universe was like, oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and so through a long, complex set of circumstances that isn't really the most important piece, I ended up losing three family members who were incredibly important to me and were deeply attached to my heart and deeply attached to my love. And through circumstances that felt completely beyond my control, they felt ripped away from me and in the hollow, you know, of those losses in the canyons that they left, there was at first just such a wide, empty space in the darkness of that and the the howling wind aspect of that, the wind moving through that barrenness was definitely one of the most intense experiences of my life that I experienced over this last year. And yet, as you know, since we are 
close in the way that we are, and I've shared these things with you, those hollownesses, once I really allowed them to be what they were, something kind of miraculous happened, and that is that I think like a rain came, and what were hollownesses kind of started getting filled up with a water, the kind of seed of life that I just hadn't had space for in the same way. I love what you're describing because it is really describing the emotion that you're going through in the process of surrendering. And this is absolutely necessary, and you're feeling it. You're feeling it because you have gone through the first two stages which are prerequisite for surrendering. And those two are, like you said, freedom and love. Without freedom, you can never love. Freedom is the prerequisite of loving. Loving is to expand your inner feeling outward, to share your inner feeling with others, to become one with them. Mm. And when you're within the limitations, when you're within the boundaries, you that. cannot do that. Mm. You cannot expand that. Mm. You could do it in your own mind, but you cannot really expand it in the universe. So you've gone through that very well. You are a free man. You believe in freedom. You preach freedom. <laughs> you Even your photography, the pictures that you take, is all about freedom. And you're also pure love. Your talks, your photographs, your expressions. Even the way you look, it's all with love. It's just like a rose spreading that aroma, that scent. There are these things in Mexico called cenotes. And there are these beautiful chain of underground rivers that were created, I think, by the volcanoes that erupted there. And there's small holes at the surface that lets the, this big shaft of light. And underneath the surface of the ground, there are these huge kind of caverns that can be hundreds and hundreds of feet wide. And I was telling my friend recently, I think over this last year, I kind of like became a cenote, you know, just like a large emptiness, with beautiful water that I didn't put there. And it's the perfect place to sing. It's the perfect place to play. It's the perfect place to be with people that you, you care about. When I kind of look back at my whole life, I can see that there was this whole journey of growth has really been about hollowing me out. Today, as I'm sitting in front of you, I feel more empty than I ever have in my entire life. And I feel thinner than I ever have. I feel less than I ever have in a way that's so good. Because even when you look at how an instrument is made, most of the instruments that have to do with wind, they're mostly just a very thin outer shell. And the vast majority of the instrument, you know, like a guitar or a cello or even a flute, mostly it's just made of space. I really feel like that has happened to me slowly over many years, but then quite dramatically over this last year. And I was just sharing with you earlier this incredible experience that happened to me last week. It was in many ways like a culmination of the journey of my entire life, at least for this moment. And I'm quite 100% aware that there was no chance that could have happened if the loss wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. Mm -hmm. I feel very humbled about it, and I also feel very almost like in awe of how intricate the system is, that it could have been designed in such a way that the darkest of things and the most terrible of things, that those two were gifts. 
because the beautiful gifts are easy to spot. And then there's these other things. And I think they're beautiful too, but it just takes many, many years to, to know that. And so I think I've kind of summed up everything now by realizing it's all beautiful. It's just either beautiful right now in a way that I can see, or it's beautiful in a way that I can't see, which I call early stage beauty. This new journey of yours is really the ultimate to take you through becoming totally surrendered. Achieving that is not easy. <laughs> no. Surrendering is not easy. Unfortunately, in Western world, we compare surrendering with force. Mm -hmm. You surrender out of force. You, you don't surrender with total joy. Mm. Surrendering with total joy requires freedom and love. It takes step by step. It's not an overnight type of thing. And as you find out that accepting the pain was the main source, was the alchemy of your success, yes. then you begin to feel, oh, I should surrender to that. Yes. <laughs> but most people don't see the pain as alchemy of pleasure. Mm. They don't see that. Because it is the pain that tells me something is not working. Mm. My finding out where the source of pain is, is the right thing to do. So that surrender, which you're going through now, this process, is really feeling and finding that not having something opens the room. Getting rid of things is what we're looking for. Getting rid of carbon dioxide is what our lungs are looking for. So congratulations on this journey of becoming surrendered. Once you are surrendered, you become like the birds, like the flowers, like nature itself. You just accept the fall and the winter. When the leaf is shaken in the fall, on a branch is dancing, is not shivering that is dying, is dancing because it's leaving room for a new growth, something to blossom. And this is what it all means. So we could shake on this branch in the fall of our life, but that shake should be a dance of joy because that is now allowing us to sprout again in a new form. I think something that is really just singing in me so loudly, you know, hearing that beautiful, beautiful sharing is how that it's such a temptation to look at a space and see a lack because we are, we are so programmed in our culture and I think partly because of the way the mind is built, you know, to accumulate and accumulate that the opposite of accumulation somehow seems to be in the wrong direction. One of the really powerful experiences that I had this summer in Paris, you know, over in Paris and in a lot of Europe, obviously there's a lot of cathedrals everywhere, really beautiful cathedrals. And so I spent quite a lot of time seeing different ones. And for a lot of my life, I felt like I had this emptiness inside, this darkness and this emptiness that, as I said earlier, in the form of that little boy who had such deep needs, that weren't met, that was kind of what that ended up representing to me. Is I carried around this boy who was full of loneliness and emptiness. And 
through this extraordinary experience that would take too long right now to say, I ended up having this epiphany, you know, and I was speaking with this muse of consciousness or an angel or an aspect of myself or whatever you want to call it, God. But I had a real conversation for sure. And it kind of showed me actually through pictures and images. And it said, oh, Jesh, that thing you have in you that you thought was a darkness and an emptiness, that's a cathedral. That's what that is. It's the temple. Because I had never before realized it, but that's actually an accurate way to describe cathedrals, a large, dark emptiness. <laughs> that's what they are. But a large, dark emptiness that you enter into, into the center of, and you worship. That's what they're for. And I think for a lot of my life, I had just been on the outside of the temple, outside of the cathedral, being like, oh, it's a large, dark emptiness. I don't want to go in there. And of course, as I did that, you know, I was disconnected from, from understanding that that large dark emptiness is a gift and it's made to enter and it's made to dance in, like you're saying. Yeah. about some of the pains that we experience okay. and see how we end up utilizing it into a, Beautiful. a power. Yes. One of the pains that people complain about is migraine headache. Migraine is really makes you don't relate to anything. You want to just, you know, stay in your bed or just be in a corner. That's a big pain. Imagine having another pain of being a painter, but being blind, mm. or being a musician and being deaf. That's another major pain that could really bother us a lot. The next one is a pain of not being accepted by people, mm. by the public. Pain of being ridiculed by people. Then there is another pain that people attacking you, just for no reason. You haven't done anything wrong. Pain of loneliness, being all alone, not having anybody to share anything with. All of these put together and all put it in the hand of Beethoven and he creates the Ninth Symphony, which is the greatest sound of human being that we put it <laughs> on our you know, spaceship and send it to the space. That is the ultimate. Mm -hmm. These pains that I just told you about was all the pains, at least some of them, still more on that, that Beethoven was wow. experiencing when he created the ninth. Wow. So if Beethoven can do that, anybody else can do that. Mm -hmm. If Beethoven was just normal like everybody else, he would be probably spend the time that he composed a symphony on watching a movie or seeing a friend or talking on the phone or any of those type of thing. But not having all of those around was what made him create the greatest sound that human being has ever created. 
I think when it comes to that, there's a journey involved in that that I think is in one way right in front of our face because we have the example of somebody like him. And then in another way, sometimes seems impossibly distant from us in, in where we are in our normal lives a lot of the time. And I've thought about that question a lot. Why do so many people experience such pain and then just fold because of it or hide because of it or become smaller because of it? And then why do the rare ones feel the exact same pain or even worse pain and then they just rise up and become giants? You know, that's been a question that's been fascinating to me since I was a little boy. And one time in considering all of that, this line came to me, anything that happens to you can be seen as a reason to quit or to continue. And the only difference between our heroes and everybody else is that they more often saw what happened to them as reasons to continue rather than quit. Because there's this incremental movement forward that is absolutely essential and vital and irreplaceable in the journey of getting to anywhere great, like a symphony, especially like one like you're talking about. And if a person, you know, has a little pain come up and they say, oh, I can't work on this right now because there's this pain. Oh, I can't do that because there's this thing I've got to do. Oh, I can't do that. They never seem like big deals right in that moment. And they're not right in that moment. But every single one is a step in this really long, 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 long journey. And I think people would be shocked if they actually knew how many steps that they had not taken over the course of a life because of very small reasons by that. And I think they would even be more shocked if they could see the person that they might have become if instead of saying no or pause or rest to all of those little choices, they instead continued. As you're describing it, it reminds me of one of the greatest miracles, metaphorically, of Christ as he walks on the water. Mm. Just imagine that scene. It's the sunset, the light is going down, the boat is going away, and, and you're going to be left out there alone. And that is what allows Christ to walk on the water. Mm. Just being somewhere left in there, ready to be attacked or, you know, people being around, all of these happening at the same time mm. allows you to pull a miracle. If Christ can pull a miracle, anybody can pull a miracle. When Christ walked on the water, he surrendered. Yes. He was not thinking. No. Because it's interesting, as he gets to the boat, I don't remember, you probably know the story better, Something happens and... As Peter was in the yeah. boat and okay. he saw Jesus and he wanted to do what Jesus was doing. And so he gets excited and he's like, Jesus, like, just tell me to come out and I'll, I'll come out and join you. But he wanted the reassurance that he wasn't going to die. And so he, he goes out and he makes this leap. But then he says he gets distracted, you know, by the waves and the sounds and the storm around him. And as he took his eyes off of Jesus, he starts sinking which is exactly what we're talking about. Exactly, because he was not surrendering anymore. That's such a powerful metaphor. <laughs> what it really has to do is an assigning of power. And I think we don't recognize how powerful we truly are a lot of the time because we see all these powerful forces around us that seem to affect us in big ways, in small ways, and they do, but we are the one who is assigning that power a lot of the time to those things. So the original source of that power 
was our own ability that I believe was given to us to designate what is powerful and what is not, you know? And so in the first moment, Peter on that boat is looking at Jesus and is assigning the miracle that was happening and the beauty that was there and the pull that he, I'm sure, felt, the pull of destiny that he felt in that moment to dive into that river. It was an ocean, but, you know, he's standing on that. And then he looks at the waves and the sound and the lightning, and then he starts assigning those things power. And I think in the metaphor of what we've been talking about, we can be excited about going on the journey. Somebody's like, I'm going to follow my dream. I've been working with creatives who are braver than most people at following dreams. Let's just be fair, because usually to be a creative, it means there's no guarantee of income. It means there's a long road ahead of you with a very small peak at the top. It takes bravery even to be a bad creative, you know, even to be not very good at it. But even then, I think sometimes among a lot of those people, the deal that they're making with themselves is, okay, I'm going to follow my dreams as long as everything works out exactly like I'm hoping that it will. And that's not following a dream. Exactly. It's not at all following a dream. Yeah. That's where the problem comes because the moment you think that way, you're connecting that with something which is in your mind. And from there on, it's all about judgment. Am I doing this thing right? Am I not doing this thing right? See, to surrender needs total giving in with joy, Mm. not being forced to surrender. When When I'm painting, I get to a point that I know that the brush moves on that canvas better than if I control it. Mm-hmm. The moment I become aware of that, then I can release it. And the work shows as a result. Sometimes I wonder about these musicians or singers who sing the same song every night. And you say, you know what? If I have to paint something like I was doing before, I would be in pain. How could they deal with that to to sing every night the same song? Mm -hmm. But what is really valuable for these great masters is that every time they're dealing with a new energy among the audience in the hall, and that new energy is what they surrender to as they're singing. You and the song and the audience become all one. That is when he's total surrender. That aspect I think you're saying too of becoming all one is a really fascinating uh, kind of a concept because having been a person who's been in those moments a lot of times where I feel the song in me, I feel the pull, I feel the river moving and I want to dive in. You know, I'm Peter on the boat looking at Jesus being like, that looks like exactly what I need to be doing right now. Having known what that feels like, it is a feeling of all oneness. It's like the only thing that exists in that moment are Jesus's eyes. I think we've all experienced that in many different kinds of places in our life, but sometimes with loved ones, we have that experience. We're looking at them and it's like they're the only thing that exists. There is a complete lack of aloneness in that. As you're talking about judgment, it's making me think, then we dive in and then well, this is a little wetter than I thought it would be. It's a little colder than I thought it would be. I didn't know there was going to be lightning. I didn't know it would be so scary to be out here. And then we start separating and judging all of these different pieces. And this is ocean and it's dangerous. This is wind and it's too much. All of these elements and pains and stuff that happen, I think, kind of shatter that feeling of, of oneness. As we start believing that all of those things are separate from us somehow, 
instead of realizing, like you said so beautifully, which I've never heard before, that Jesus was able to do that because of all of those elements. Maybe it was the very storm itself that was allowing that thing to happen. And that's the rare perspective, because usually people think, well, this thing has to happen, and none of these bad things can happen. And then you get a Mozart, you know, or a Jesus who says, I'm going to do the beautiful thing. I'm going to become the beautiful thing because these things happened. Not even in spite of them, but because. And I think in some ways that might be why they grew to be such giants is because pain is a giant energy. There's so much pain in the world. There's so much pain in us. There's so much pain in in the universe and if in our human experience of it. And if a person just cordons all of that off and separates it and say, well, that's not for me those things, I don't want any of those things. And all that's left maybe is this smaller little version of themselves. But when a person becomes free, as you say, and tears down that wall and says, pleasure, pain, lightness, dark, good, bad, what are these? All I see is energy. All I see is, is life. And they say, it's all for me. Yeah, and remember the life begins in the black hole. Yeah. The star is born in the black hole. Stars die into the black hole in order to come to life with brightness. All we have to do is dying, not becoming the bright star. All we have to do is getting rid of carbon dioxide from our lungs, not to take oxygen in. Right. Because the moment I go after taking oxygen in, I'm going to suffocate. I get too much of it. The whole action that we need to do is moving out to letting go. Just keep on releasing everything. Because the most beautiful thing about surrender with joy is that we get to observe the clues. You become watchful of Mm. what is around and you see it with kindness, not with critics' point of view. You see everything as possibilities. Yes. And as you see things as possibilities, they begin to build up, build up. You become selective. They become the clues that take you to the next step and the next step and the next step. One time, I went with two friends through Sequoia National Park, and uh, we decided that let's get into the depth of the forest. And as we were walking, the light was dimming, and we were getting close to the sunset. Mm. And I don't know if you've been in a forest in the dark. It's very scary. Very scary. (laughs) Because you cannot find your direction. (laughs) In a forest in the dark. There's no way, you know. And we began to get a little bit frightened. But Max was just having a good time, (laughs) showing us these trees and taking pictures and all of that, and couldn't even care less about (laughs) 
what was happening. And we kept on saying, Max, we got to get out of here because it's getting dark. Can't you see? And Max was saying, look at this one. And it's getting dark. Look at this part of this tree, how nice it is now that the light is there. So we were really getting frustrated. Finally, we said, Max, this is not working out. It's getting dark. And Max pointed at three rocks that they were sitting on top of each other. And on one of these rocks, it said, point two. Now, we were not seeing that, but Max was seeing that. Mm. He was seeing the clues that was telling him that we got 0.2 miles to get out of the forest, mm. and that's the way to go. Mm. But we were not seeing it because we were nervous. We were frustrated. Yes. The pain of being in this forest in the dark and the idea that we're going to be having problem it was preventing us from seeing the clues that Max was seeing. So he was enjoying that because he was surrendering to the flow. He'd been there before. He knew that the clues are there, and he was looking for them. Wherever there was a need for a clue, a clue was there. And this is what happens in our life. When there is a need for a clue, the clue appears. When we are seeing things while we're bewildered, mm. not while we're lost. And in that condition, we make the connection. It's so powerful. Honestly, as you were speaking, just I felt like I was watching a fireworks show go off in my, my brain. One of the main ones that kind of came was when we are going through those hard situations and we are labeling them as bad, you know, or as painful or as something to be avoided, that becomes our reality. That becomes what's real for us because our power goes into that. As you were noticing the, the darkness falling around you and you were worried about getting out, you were assigning power to all of those things. And I think it comes back to how are we judging these dark things that happen to us? What are we calling them? Because there's a quote that comes to me from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's one of my favorites. He says something close to, all the world is lines, strings of tension waiting to be struck. To someone, they would look at that and they would just say, oh, it's still, it's empty. There's no sound playing. And he says, perfect. This exact thing, this silence, this emptiness, this darkness is a string of tension waiting to be struck. And if you look at that interaction, you know, between a human and their instrument, it is this emptiness. It doesn't play music. It's not magical at all just by itself, but it's in the interaction and it's the playing and it's in the pressing into the thing that's not making any of the noise. That's where the music starts coming from. And so you could see how that somebody like a, a Mozart or a Beethoven would have all of these problems around them. And most people would say, well, it's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a darkness. It's an emptiness. It's a blackness. And he says, oh, that's, that's not a darkness. That's not an emptiness. It, it's, it's an instrument. I'll show you. And moves straight into that and starts pressing into it and playing it and continuing and pressing in and through the search and the movement into that the music the music almost seems to be the result of the diving in towards the emptiness you know the moving in closer towards the stillness towards the thing that we're afraid of and the music that comes from that is neither us nor the instrument but a mixture of those two things yeah, it reminds me of, of Rumi. Suddenly he would begin to utter poetry. And as you know, he did not write it down. It was just coming right through. 
But as he's going through, always he gets to a point that, hmm, I've gone too far now. And at that point, he tells himself to shut up. He tells himself <laughs> to be silent. Almost 80% of Rumi's poem ends up with a phrase at the end that says silent. And he puts himself into silence. Being in the silence is when we can receive. Yes. Once we put out, we put out too much, then there's going to be a time that now I got to go into silence in order to receive it. It's just like emptying the stomach in order to receive the food, yes. emptying the lungs in order to receive the oxygen. Yes. Same thing happens. So be silent. To be silent is not to just be quiet no. with words. No. To be silent is to silence your mind, to silence everything. And when we are in that pure silence, we become the blank canvas that allows the great painter to paint on it. So when our mind is filled with so many different things, when our life is filled with too much things, we become like a child on Christmas morning that we have too many toys to play with. Most of my students, all I see them there, don't know where to begin. They have a problem trying to find their way through the mess that they have. And my recommendation is always, my whole program is always to get rid of the mess. You don't have to add any more things. I think I just feel something forming in me that just feels such a profound elucidation, such a clearness from what you're saying. Because I've obviously thought about this subject a lot in my life, but I think a really important piece that stood out to me earlier when you were talking is you said you've learned that what comes from your paintbrush when you've surrendered is more powerful than what comes when you're forcing it. And I think that's partly why you are now, at this point in your life, able to spend so much of your time in that surrendered state is because of that. When I heard you say that, that really shot out to me as a super important point that you learned, you saw, you experienced that the surrender ended up leading you to more beauty than you could have done on your own. And I think that's the place that a lot of us humans are stuck in is we don't know that yet. We don't believe that yet. What happens to you when you fully dive in, when you do the Peter, you know, when you do the Jesus to dive into the situation is you experience something that shocks your system, a form of beauty that overwhelms you and forever changes you. And once you have a moment like that, you have much more confidence going into the next such moment because you remember oh, this is that place where something else moved through me that was way more interesting than my own thoughts. And somebody like you or like I, who has lived many years of our life practicing that, it's not even that big of a deal anymore for us to step aside because we are so clear at this point that anything I could do with my absolute best effort would be pebbles compared to this you know, mighty avalanche that could potentially come through. And I think when you really know that, when you when you ground that into your mental chemistry, as you say, the work of being a quote-unquote great artist isn't about trying to be great or trying to make something great. It's trying to get greatly out of the way, trying to get make as big of a space as possible, stretch your mind and your body to be as big of a canvas as you possibly can, knowing that the only limitation that will be supplied at all through your work 
will be the limitation that you're supplying, you know, where your edges are. And so the work of the artist becomes not to try to make something great, but to try to stretch themselves as wide open as possible, to hollow themselves out as fully as possible, because the supply is infinite. So, you know, to cap what we discussed today, number one thing is to know that you're free. Make yourself free. Know that there is no limitation. Do not copy somebody. Do not try to be like somebody because that by itself is a limitation because it brings your mind into judgment and comparison. So the first thing is to free your mind from anything. Next step to do is to love. In order for you to love is to see things through kindness, not through judgment. Everything that you see, feel with the beauty of it. See the beauty in it. Be kind about everything that you're dealing with. And that develops love, expands love. When you've gone through these two steps, then you could begin to take small steps of surrendering mm -hmm. to whatever clues you find along the way. Because you know that the power that has brought you this far yes. is not going to let you stop right there. Yes. It's going to give you the next clue yes. and the next clue. So to begin our life of success, to make a life which is worth living, we have to take that journey. You cannot suddenly surrender and say, ah, this is it. I'm surrendered. It doesn't happen. You're going to go through that journey. The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh Durox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Nicholas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community.